Hella Crafts was a successful stewardess and the proud mother of three children. In December of 1986, she was reported missing to the police by her hired private investigator. Was she just taking a break from the family life, or was there something more sinister afoot? Welcome to Sentenced. I'm Caitlin. And I'm Kara. Uh, before we get into today's episode, how are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. Any plans? Yes. Okay. So I have my work's Christmas party, which is going to be really fun, I think. And I wanted to tell you, okay, so I know you hate this, but this year for your birthday slash Christmas present, I'm combining them. No! <laughs> I know, I'm sorry. But the reason is because I, one, was like super late to the game with my shopping. And also, so we're going to be in Southern California, and then we're coming back, and then you're going to Southern California, and then you're going back home. So it's, yeah, I by the time I got everything out, it was going to be after your birthday anyways, so I'm sorry. So you're basically getting me like a New Year's present? Yep. Okay, that works. <laughs> <laughs> it's not as big of a deal now that I'm an adult, but when I was a kid, it definitely was like a sore spot of getting Christmas and birthday combined because it was like, I know my birthday's four days after Christmas, but still, it's a different holiday. Yeah, it's so, two totally... That's, I'd say that's, like, one awesome thing about having a summer birthday. My birthday is June 12th. I'm a Gemini. And I feel like it was perfect because I got something in June, and then I got something six months later in December. <laughs> so it was, it's all about balance, you know? Well, growing up, I actually had a summer birthday party just so I could have a birthday party where people actually came. So I did that one time, but other than that, it was just always difficult trying to get people to actually come to my birthday party. That's amazing. Was it like a half birthday party or was it like a Kind of. Party? Yeah, like we, I still have the invitation and everything from it and we just had a pool party at the house because we had a, a pool at our house. So yeah, I told my mom, I was like, I want to do my birthday party in the summer and she's like, okay. I remember, so in kindergarten, that's when I realized that if you had a birthday, like, you could get attention for it, and so I was super <laughs> stoked because I just, I've always wanted attention my whole life. <laughs> so, oh, really? I had no idea. <laughs> and, like, my first day of kindergarten, the last day of school, was June 11th. Oh, no. And then every year after that, the the end of the school year progressively got closer and closer to, like, the first of June. <laughs> so my birthday was never in during school. It was horrible. I, I was just going to say, that, like, I don't remember being in school that long. I always felt like we were out of school before June hit. Yeah. That's crazy. Well, sorry you're not in school anymore to, like, have your birthday at school, but hopefully people at work will celebrate your birthday. I, yeah. We'll see. <laughs> yeah. <coughs> Sorry. All right. Well, are we ready to get into the episode? Yes. Let's do it. Okay. Well, I have a bummer for you as per usual. So okay. we'll just get right in. Hella Lork Nielsen was born on July 7th, 1947 
in a small village just north of Denmark called Charlotte. Oh my gosh, I'm going to butcher this so many times. Charlotte Lund, I think is correct. <laughs> Hella enjoyed school and was able to learn languages very easily. In her teens, Hella was able to speak French and English and was also able to understand German, Norwegian, and Swedish. It's impressive. I can barely speak English, so, you know, the fact that she's got five, six languages down is insane. It's so crazy. That's how they do it in Europe, and I really wish we did that more here because it's so, it's such a good skill to have learning another language in general, but then being able to learn several different languages and travel to several different countries, I feel like would be so cool. Yeah, absolutely. I think America does things a little backwards. Like, don't get me wrong, I love being American, but... There's a lot of growing we, we still need to do. Yeah. <laughs> so by the time Hella was 20 years old, she had been living in France for a few years as an au pair. An au pair is a foreigner that works in a home in exchange for room and board. So work typically included household chores or watching the children of the host family. Um, so kind men, of like a nanny, right? I think my cousin did that. Kind of, but like, so the, they basically worked in the home for to live there so they would do like household chores help the kids with their homework take care of their kids so it was kind of like everything all rolled into one but they got free housing nice yeah um so men were immediately infatuated with hella she's gorgeous we're definitely going to share her picture on the instagram because everybody deserves to see her she was five six slim beautiful blonde hair and the most infectious smile I think I've ever seen on a human being like that's why today's a bummer it's just I hate when good people I hate when people are taken out of the world in general but it's always like in these situations shining lights of people and they're just snuffed out so after being an au pair for a few years Hella left to become a stewardess with Capital Airways and began traveling the world Hella was filled with an adventurous spirit and loved experiencing new places. At 22 years old, Hella would then apply for a stewardess position with Pan Am Airways since they were flying out of Copenhagen, Denmark, which meant she would be able to fly out near her hometown. So she went from being in Denmark to France, and now she's back in Denmark, and this is where she started working with um, Pan Am. Okay. She was one of eight selected... Out of 200 candidates. What? For her position. Wow. So she must must have been, like, very charismatic and... Extremely. 22 years old. Ari has experience as a stewardess and just beautiful. And then um, they actually flew her to Miami for training, and she finished first in her class. Wow. Yeah. So she had everything going on for her. On May 24th, 1969, while waiting at a motel for a flight, she met 31-year-old Richard Crafts. So, he's about nine years older than her. So, okay. not, too, not too crazy of an age difference. No. Now on to Richard Crafts. Richard B. Crafts was born on December 20th, 1937. Extremely glad he's two days shy of being a Capricorn because I don't want to share that energy with him. No. <laughs> and he was born in New York City, New York. Richard was one of three kids, um, and it's said that his father, John, was a very successful businessman in Manhattan. I couldn't really find anything on his mom, 
but his dad was not happy living in the city, so he moved his family to Darien, Connecticut. Um, his father was a former World War One pilot and college football player, so standards were set very, very high in his home. Um, but even with the high standards, John, his father, tried very hard to give his kids the best possible lives. Okay. So he sent all of his kids to private school. So high standards, but wanted them to succeed and yeah. gave them everything they could need to succeed. Right, so setting setting them up for success, basically. Yeah, exactly. Instead of just being like, I want you to do everything that I did, but you got to figure out how to do it on your own. He was just like, no, I'm going to give you everything to succeed. Right. Richard was not a memorable student, but did graduate from Darien High School. After high school, Richard attempted college, but quickly dropped out. And in 1956, he enlisted with the Marines. So again, his dad was in the military. Now he's going down the military path. While in the Marines, Richard expressed an interest in aviation and started flying helicopters. He then started training on fixed-wing aircrafts and became a certified pilot in the late 50s. So within less than two years of being in the Marines, Richard quickly went from flying helicopters to being a certified pilot. Okay. In 1958, Richard was transferred to Korea and Japan. While he was there, he started flying for Air America, which was a branch recognized by the CIA. This is also the same name as the 1990 movie with a young Mel Gibson and Robert Downey Jr. <laughs> it has five and a half out of or five point eight out of ten star viewer reviews and a thirty eight Metascore on IMDb, so not, not great. great. <laughs> uh, but RDJ and Mel Gibson look amazing, so I just thought I would put that in there. <laughs> I feel like a lot of Mel Gibson is like hit or miss. Yeah, you know, I love him in Signs. Okay. And Signs is a movie I wish I could watch again for the very first time. Like, I will watch it over and over again. It's such a great movie. Okay, I have never seen Signs, which is... Get great. out. I know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I've seen it. I don't remember it. Like, because I feel like it came out and then everyone was talking about it. And I was like, okay, so I haven't watched it, but I kind of have because I already know everything that happens. But Mel Gibson is great in The Patriot. The Patriot's great. Signs scarred me as a kid because... Um, my sister and I were watching it, and then my dad ended up scaring us in the middle of it. So I was oh horrified for years. But now it's kind of one of my comfort movies, and it's really strange how that happens. That is weird. Trauma. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Everyone's got it. <laughs> Basically. Um, anyway, so according to Wikipedia, Air America was a passenger and cargo airline established in 1946, and was covertly owned and operated by the CIA from 1950 to 1976, and supplied and supported covert operations in Southeast Asia during the Vietnam War, and provided support for drug smuggling in Laos. So wait, what? Yeah, so it was kind of weird trying to find information on Air America because the CIA is involved. Um, but long story long, it would make sense that Richard, who was in the Marines would work for a covert operation from the CIA or for the CIA. Okay. Um, if this is actually what he was doing, we will never know because, you know, the government. Mm. <laughs> but <laughs> I just thought I would throw that in there just because I thought it was kind of interesting. That is interesting. Um, and somewhat concerning. <laughs> extremely. <laughs> 
Richard would return to the U.S. in 1966, three years before meeting Hella. Upon his return to the States, Richard was able to find work quickly, considering he had a stacked resume. He would fly for a few different companies before settling with Eastern in 1968. Uh, just a side note about Eastern Airlines. According to an article I found on Georgia State University's library page, at the time, Eastern Airlines was considered one of the big four domestic airlines in the U.S. and introduced an air shuttle service in 1961. These shuttle services were created as an alternative to bus routes and included hourly flights from Atlanta to Washington, D.C., New York, and Boston. What? Yeah. <laughs> hourly flights. Like, oh, I'm just going to go catch a flight real quick to Boston. See you later. That seems really excessive. Yeah. Uh, I don't know how I feel about them. I don't know how that would work now, considering all the millions of people out there, but... Um, during this time, Eastern Airlines also expanded international service to Mexico, Bermuda, Puerto Rico, and Canada. Under the leadership of former astronaut Frank Borman, Eastern Airlines enjoyed continued success in the industry until the enactment of the Airline Deregulation Act of 1978. So, sorry, just a little tangent about Eastern Airlines I thought was interesting. <laughs> Um, although Richard was a very busy pilot, he still found time to look for love and have a social life. In 1968, while engaged to another woman, Ugh. Richard met Hella. According to sources, Hella was aware of this and didn't seem to mind. Um, over a few years, Hella and Richard would maintain an on-and-off relationship, even before eventually marrying the two often had been seen arguing in public, but would always make up. So, not a great start. No. Hella's friends were openly against the relationship and often showed hostility towards Richard. Hella was a beautiful, intelligent woman and could literally have any man she wanted, but she chose to be with Richard. Mm. I feel like that unfortunately happens to all of us. Yeah. It just sucks. Yeah. <laughs> um... So, at least her friends, like, knew from the jump that they hated him. Right. And, like, showed that. But, I mean, it ultimately didn't work because we have this story to tell now. Exactly. And I think it's, you always want to see the best in people. And I think that when you're in that relationship, the person does a really good job of hiding it and telling you what you want to hear and what you, seeing what you want to see and that sort of thing. Whereas your friends kind of get this gut feeling and they're, you know, they just feel some things off or whatever. Yeah, and, like, from past experiences, I had a really crappy ex, and I was very much isolated from everybody. I didn't yep. have a lot of friends to begin with, so it was isolation from my family and everything, so it's it's very lonely, and I can see why people end up with their abusers for years. Exactly, because they... It's really a control tactic. They don't want you to see your family. They don't want you to see your friends. They start speaking poorly about them and manipulating you to think that your friends or your family is the problem and not that person. Exactly. It's very toxic. So I couldn't, I didn't find anything on how Richard treated her friends, but I mean, I'd, it'd be safe to assume that he was most likely doing the same things. 
1975, Hella got pregnant, and by November, the two were married. So, unfortunately, she got stuck with him for life, whether it worked out or not. Mm. In 1976, the newlyweds purchased a single-story ranch house at 5 Newfield Lane in Newtown, Connecticut. The house sat about 50 yards from the street and was around 2,200 square feet. The home was built in 1972 and featured four bedrooms and three baths. You bet your ass I found it on Zillow because I'm crazy. Uh, the home sat on about two acres of land. This is where they would continue to live when they welcomed two more children. Hella returned to work as a stewardess and hired a 19-year-old au pair of her own named Dawn Marie Thomas. With both of them working, their yearly income was at $125,000, which is equivalent to $450,000 today. Nice. Yeah, so they were making good money. Mm-hmm. Uh, with this, their household income was in the top five, uh, 5% of wage earners in America in the 1980s. Wow. Yeah. Uh, random fact, too, their house is only eight minutes away from Sandy Hook Elementary. Isn't that crazy? What is that? So Sandy Hook was where that mass shooting uh, happened. Okay, ten okay. years ago. I knew that. Yeah. So, even weirder is the day I was researching this case was exactly ten years from the shooting. Ooh. So isn't that really creepy? Like how the universe works. Yeah, that is creepy. Oh uh, yeah. So December fourteenth of this year was the ten year anniversary. So you literally could leave their house, turn left, and made another right, and go straight, and you were at the elementary school. Just eight minutes down the street. Wow. So their kids most likely would have gone to that school. Just set 20 years prior. Um, or I guess 30, sorry, bad enough. Um, in 1984, Richard was actually found to have colon cancer Ooh. and was only given a 2% chance of survival but he ultimately beat the odds. Yeah, right? (laughs) I mean, I don't know how this story plays out, but from the way you're talking about him, it doesn't sound like it's a great story for him. It took everything in me not to just change his name from Richard to Dick throughout the whole story, because I just don't want to say Dick a thousand times. Yeah, I get that. But, I mean, he's a dick, so... (laughs) Um, Friends would say that Hella cared for him during his chemo and even after his surgery, but he was extremely ungrateful and took it for van- uh, took it for granted. Wow. Um, so Richard was also in charge of managing the household finances and spent most of his time and money purchasing guns. Yay. What? Yeah, he's a he's a peach. Um, his arsenal included shotguns, 9mm automatics, 44 caliber revolvers, 357 magnums, high-powered rifles, semi-automatic weapons, crossbows, hand grenades, and thousands of rounds of ammunition. Why do you need that? All in all, he had enough weaponry to arm 50 people. What? 50 people. Yeah. Richard was obsessed with his hoard and spent hours a week cleaning and rearranging his collection. That is all he did. He even frequented gun shows, but not with his own exhibition, but as a customer. So he was constantly on the market looking for guns. Where Despite... do you even... Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. No, Where you're good. Where do you even keep all of these? Like, I... Ah, that's so excessive. 
yeah, he's a psycho. Like, I don't know if he ever was diagnosed with anything, but, like, it's it's definitely an obsession. And the fact that he was constantly cleaning them and rearranging them, I, I'm not a psychologist, I don't know, but it definitely sounds like maybe there was some OCD going on mm-hmm. there or some sort of obsessive trait of his. I don't know. Um, So despite being financially well-off, the aggression Richard had towards his wife was never-ending. The arguing turned physical, and Hella was often seen around town with bruises on her face. Oh, no. Yeah, not still not good. It never got better for her, unfortunately. According to a close friend of Hella's, Richard was extremely abusive towards her, even during her pregnancies. What? The friend would also state that after Hella gave birth to their children... Richard's dumbass would pack up and disappear for a few days at a time and not tell anyone where he was going. Right after she had a baby? Yep. Literally in the hospital giving birth to his child, and he's like, yeah, I gotta go. See you later, but never told her that he was leaving. That's awful. Yeah. This guy sucks. (laughs) It's awful to do that in general if you're in a marriage, but while your wife is having a baby? Yeah, he sucks. I just... I hate him. And you're going to hate him so much more by the end of the story. Um, Hella wanted to leave Richard multiple times, but during one of her attempts to leave, Richard claimed his cancer was in remission. Or, sorry, his cancer came back. Um, but eventually Hella found out that he was lying. So it just created more tor- turmoil and contention in their house. And so, yeah, yeah like I said, he sucks. <laughs> Even though Richard was in control of the finances, this didn't mean he paid any of the bills. Their money was very separate, and he made Hella pay for all household expenses from her salary. So, combined, they're making about $450,000 a year in today's money. And he's most likely making most of that because he's a pilot. Mm-hmm. But he's making her pay all of the household expenses. So, groceries, electricity, gas... All of that. That's coming from her salary. And he spent his salary uh, continuing to purchase guns, a tractor, a $25,000 a backhoe, and other landscaping equipment. A backhoe? Yeah. A $25,000 backhoe. Did they need a backhoe? I mean, they had two acres. Um, well, he never used them. And so all of these tools literally just sat in their front yard and started to rust. If I had an excessive amount of money and I was buying things just left and right, I can say very confidently that a backhoe would not be on my list of purchases. No, not at all. I don't even know what I would use that for other than if I was doing a big landscaping project, but then again, I'd probably rent one. Yeah. If I was doing the landscaping project by (laughs) myself, which is a big (laughs) if. Right. I would just pay somebody. Like, I'm not going to do all that by myself. No. Um, The house began to be neglected and was either in need of repairs or having repairs done constantly. So even with all of these tools and everything he was purchasing, he never used them. And to make matters worse, from the time they were married to the time Hella disappeared, Richard was having multiple affairs. No. Yay. And Hella knew this was happening. Um, But she stayed in the marriage most likely to provide for her children. Right. But she finally had enough, and in 1986, she hired a divorce, a divorce attorney as well as a private detective, Keith Mayo, 
a former police officer. And Keith Mayo's main responsibility was to collect evidence against Richard and provide her definitive proof that he was, in fact, having an affair. That's smart. And, yeah. If, if I had money and I wanted to find out if my husband was cheating, I wouldn't do it myself. I'd be like, you know what? Somebody else do it because I don't yeah. have time. And that's dangerous. Yeah. Um, so shortly after hiring Mayo, he provided evidence to Hella that Richard was having um, multiple affairs. And so she was going to proceed with filing the divorce and getting all of that finalized. On December 1st, 1986, Mayo would report Hella missing to the Newtown Police Department. He told police that his client was missing and that he feared she was murdered by her husband, Richard Crafts. So right out the gate, Keith Mayo is like, she's gone. Her husband did it. You need to investigate. There was no, I don't know who did this. I don't know. She was a great person. No, she was a great person. Her husband did it. You need to investigate. According to Mayo, Hella left her home on November 19th on her way to Richard's sister Karen's house in Westport, about 34 minutes away from their home. However, Hella never showed up and hadn't been heard from since. Hella's car was later found in the employee parking lot at Kennedy International Airport. Uh, Kennedy Airport is an hour and 40 minutes from the Crafts home. To get to this airport, you would actually pass Karen's home as she lived about an hour from the airport. So if you were on your way to the airport, you could stop by Karen's house on the way. So even if she had gone to the airport and her plan was to stop by Karen's house, it was on the way to the airport. So it's just really weird that she never showed up at Karen's house at all. Okay. Newtown police were familiar with Richard, but not due to a record, but because he was an auxiliary police officer since 1982. No. Yep. Richard was said to be very rigid and took his limited police responsibilities very seriously. Oh, so he was on a power trip? Oh, absolutely. He even drove around in a fake police car and took part-time jobs as a security guard. What a (laughs) douchebag. Yeah, extremely. Um, On December 2nd, police interviewed Richard, and he told them that Hella was in a pleasant mood the night before, and on November 19th, she was planning to go to his sister's house in Westport, due to the crafts not having power um, because of a recent storm. The storm in question occurred on November 19th and blanketed the area with snow, and about 200,000 homes were without power. Holy smokes. Yeah, there was a big storm in the area, and he wasn't lying about that. And he also confirmed that he hadn't seen his wife since November 19th. So, I don't know if you've been keeping track of dates, but he hasn't seen her since November 19th. She was reported missing on December 1st by Keith Mayo. Wait, Not her what? husband. Yeah. Oh, okay, so his wife has been missing and he's just not going to say anything to anyone? Yep. I hate this guy. If I don't call my husband 30 minutes after I'm supposed to be off of work, he will literally call me, and if I don't answer, he will be on his way to me in the, within, like, a few minutes. Yeah. Because something's not right. Because I always call him on my way home from work. He knows exactly where I'm at. And I think I've said this, like, in my first episode or in the last episode. I don't know. But it's, like, that's, like, maybe 45 minutes of not hearing from me and he's already acting. 12 days of her missing and you're, like, oh, yeah, yeah, She went to my sister's house. I haven't seen her since. That is so bizarre because I feel like 
your spouse or your significant other not even coming home for the night is oh, weird. I would not be able to sleep if Robert didn't show up at night or like even during the day when he's supposed to be home. I'm crazy. I'm going to go find him because obviously something's wrong. Right. Because either he's cheating on me or he's dead. And I don't think he'd ever cheat on me. Yeah. (laughs) And I don't think he would ever cheat on me, so he's probably dead. And that's not good. (laughs) Police did not find their initial interview with Richard suspicious, as most of their missing persons cases ended up being found. The police assumed since she was a busy mom, she just needed some time away from her husband and children. I hate when people say that. It's like, okay. Yes, everyone should have time for themselves. Everyone should practice self-care. And in a perfect world, yeah, that would be awesome if everyone could. But number one, not everyone can. And number two, if they can and they choose to, then they are going to make arrangements and they are going to communicate what they're doing and where they're going and how long they're going to be gone for and when to when they're going to be back. Right. Nobody's just going to be like, all right, bye, and like not say anything and just disappear for 12 days. No. So, unfortunately, Newtown police did not initially prioritize her case, but a few days later, they began interviewing close friends of the Crafts. So, they didn't act quickly, quickly, but they also didn't just completely brush it under the rug. Um, but that was also in part to Hella's friends were up their asses. They were like, she's a devoted mother, she would never do this, like, you need to look into this. So it was more so the persistence of her friends that really pushed Newtown police to be like, okay, fine, we'll start looking into this a little bit further. Um, So all of her friends were like, no, she's a devoted mother and would never leave her children for a prolonged amount of time without notifying notifying them or even their au pair because Dawn had no idea where she was. What? Yeah, so she's just at the house taking care of their kids. Richard's giving her little to no information, which we'll get into in a minute, but... She wouldn't just leave. That's just not something she would do. So from the sounds of it, was Richard communicating with the au pair that he knew where she was? Because if I was the au pair and I didn't... I mean, that happened before when I was babysitting one time. The mom didn't come home until 5 a.m. I was freaking out. I was calling her. I was calling her friends. I ended up calling her ex-husband because she was supposed to be home at midnight and this is five hours later. I am thinking, what do I do when these kids wake up? So was he somehow trying to divert her attention, making her seem, making it seem like everything was okay and he knew where she was? I mean, maybe you'll get into that. Yeah, I'm going to get into it. Also, what the hell? What a terrible mom that you were babysitting for. Dude. Like that, I've had that happen where like I thought a family was going to be home at a certain time and I got real tired and like dozed off on their couch, but their kids were already asleep. They were like an hour late, but five hours. Yeah, and it was... The person I was babysitting for was my ex-boyfriend, and at the time, he was my ex-boyfriend, his mom's friend. So I should not have been there regardless, because (laughs) I had no business being in that situation, but... Hey, money's money. Sometimes you have to Especially when you're, like, 18 years old and you're poor. Yeah, exactly. Um, So police started investigating and speaking with her friends, um, and they found out from the friends that Richard was having multiple affairs and that Hella was planning to divorce her husband. While the investigation continued, police would find that Richard was telling multiple different stories as to what happened to his wife. Mm. He told one neighbor that she went to Germany, 
but told others he had no idea where she went. Okay, you have to at least keep your line consistent, dick. Yeah, he's an idiot. He told Dawn, the au pair, that Hella went to Denmark because her mother was sick and that she was that that she would be back on November 24th. On November 29th, a friend of Hella's, Lena Johansson, got her mother's phone number in Denmark and called her, which also like same. Yeah, <laughs> I would have done the doing? same thing. <laughs> I'm like, "Okay, cool. You could tell me she's in Denmark, but if she's not coming home, I'm going to find that number and I'm going to call her mom." Yeah, and I know for a fact you would do that. <laughs> yeah, or if you're me, you just find all their Instagrams and Facebooks. <laughs> Can confirm. Um, Hella's mother was not sick, and Hella had not been there. So not only is this guy lying, but he's involving other people that would clearly see her, so he's not doing a good job of it. Ugh. And Hella's mother also confirmed that she actually wasn't planning to see her daughter until April, so in another four months. What? Lena was extremely upset by this information and called the police. She revealed to the police that the that earlier that month, Hella told her, if anything happens to me, don't assume it was an accident. No. I'm sorry. If anybody says that to me, I'm going to be up the police's ass, like, trying to do something. But also, it always just is so upsetting when people say that because you know something's wrong. And they, you can't do anything. No, you absolutely can't do anything. And it's also, you don't want to involve yourself too much because then what's going to happen for you and your safety? You don't know if that person's going to go talk to their significant other and say that you, you know, Caitlin was warning me about you. Caitlin thinks that you're toxic. Caitlin thinks that you're abusive, right? So you have to protect yourself. You still want to protect your friend, but there's really not much that you can do aside from encouraging them yeah get help I don't know right and just being there for them when they do confide in you but it's also just like you got to keep tabs on your friends and it sounds like her friends were pretty much on top of it um so I don't know it's just it's such a hard situation to be in I will say that if anyone is going through that right now or they think that they might be going through that right now with a significant other in a toxic or abusive relationship, you can file police reports without pressing charges. You can call the police department, have them write something up that has this person's name on it without that person ever finding out, which is beneficial if it ever gets worse or happens to anyone else. There's They have a record of it. They have it on file. And as a property manager, I've had numerous people come into my office, like, upset because they want to get their boyfriend or their husband off their lease. And there's not a whole lot we can do until there's a restraining order. So once the restraining order is in place, you can have people take it off of your lease. So don't ever assume that you are permanently stuck in a situation. You can get out and there are resources to hopefully help you out. It is just very difficult to have that mental state of getting out of there and that is the hardest part is leaving i think they say people try to leave seven times before they actually do and it is the most dangerous time because that person can kind of sniff it out they might have their suspicions but i would say pack a go bag pack a bag that has a few essentials in it a few pairs of clothes a pair of shoes some hidden money that your significant other doesn't know about and then 
put that bag somewhere where they can't find it. And when you get that opportunity, just take it and run. Yeah. It's, Everything else can be replaced. It's hard. I mean, my ex and I broke up probably <laughs> seven times. And the longest time was for three months. And I still went back to him. And the day that I left him, I had lost all love and all respect for him. And mm-hmm. I just was done. I was like, I will be back tomorrow to come get my stuff. When you're at work, do not be here. The next day I showed up with my brother. We got all my stuff and haven't looked back. And I'm so so happy that that worked out for you. Me too. Now I have my husband and our children, our fur babies, I should Mm -hmm. say. (laughs) Because we don't have kids. But (laughs) yeah, it's you can get there. It's just always, it's difficult to get there, to get to that point. Yes, it is. Uh, So back to Hella and Richard. During the investigation, police interviewed Dawn, the au pair, and she revealed that on the morning of November 19th, around 6 a.m., Richard woke her to inform her that Hella was on her way to his sister's house and that they would meet her there. Dawn said this was strange considering the storm that had happened the night before, but Richard insisted on taking the children to his sister's since they had lost power. Around 6.30, he woke the children and loaded them into the car with Dawn and had them leave immediately. So, according to Dawn, Hella had left earlier in the morning on November 19th and was already on her way to Richard's sister's house. So, this is what Dawn is being told from Richard. She didn't actually see Hella leave or anything like that. And Dawn got in the car with Richard and the kids. So, all four of them are going without Hella. So... Hella's already on her way there, and then Don, Richard, and the kids are now on their way as well to Karen's house. And this was pretty early in the morning. At like 6.30 a.m., yeah. Okay. Richard and Don arrived to Karen's house, but Hella wasn't there. Um, so it was already immediately really strange that she had left before them and also wasn't there yet. So Don was already on edge about the whole situation. Richard dropped them off, so Dawn and the kids, and didn't return to pick them up until 7 p.m. that night. So the sister's house is only 34 minutes away. Um, With the weather conditions, it may take about an hour to get there because it was a very, very heavy snow from the night before, and all the power was out, so if there were any street lights, those probably weren't working. So maybe an hour to get there. So they would have gotten there around like 7.30, 8 a.m. He left, went home. Would have gotten home around 8, 30, 9 o'clock. Did not show up until 7 p.m. to pick up his family. So he was gone all day. Okay. Yeah, he was gone all day. Don asked Richard that night where Hella was, and he just said he didn't know. The next day, she asked about Hella again, and that's when Richard told her she was in Denmark to care for her mother. Don also noted that pieces of the carpet in the master bedroom were cut out and missing from the home. Oh, Richard, Yeah, totally normal. It's okay to just cut out pieces of carpet. Richard told her that he had spilled kerosene and that the carpet needed to be replaced. Okay, so why not remove all of the carpet? I was just going to say, so replace the carpet. Don't cut out the stain parts. No one would do that. Right, and I really, I literally put in my notes, do you know how hard it is to match pieces of carpet, especially if the carpet is a few years old? Yeah. Like, even if they're still manufacturing it, it's not going to match. So why would you just cut out pieces of it? And what, are you just going to, like, glue a square on where the old right? square was? <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. 
Newtown police were now very suspicious of Richard and requested he submit to a lie detector test. Richard agreed and ended up passing on December 4th, three days after she was reported missing, and 15 days since the last time she was seen. He would later take and pass two additional lie detector tests throughout the investigation. Question. Yes, ma'am. Do they teach you how to pass lie detector tests in the military? Probably. I think if you're in, like, more of a branch that you're potentially going to be taken or... Like, captured. Yeah, in a position where you're going to be interrogated by, you know, an enemy, most likely. But also, Mans had 15 days to, like, convince himself that he had no idea where she was. And to also calm his nerves in exactly. practice and not be anxious about it. Yeah, I mean... She was reported 12 days later, and then on the 15th day, he took his first lie detector test and has passed three of them. He passed all of them with flying colors. Like, so he's had plenty of time to convince himself that she was, in fact, missing and that he had no idea where she was, and that was his story, and that's exactly what happened. I hate so lie he, detector tests. They're so stupid. They're so stupid. Um, it, they don't make any sense to me because it's just like if you're really good at controlling your heart rate and convincing yourself that something did actually happen when it didn't happen, you're going to pass. So um, although lie detector tests are not admissible in court, one investigator wrote in his report, quote, based on the polygraph examination and my numerous conversations with Mr. Crafts, he does not know where his wife is, unquote. Um, No. That, that right there where he says he does not know where his wife is sounds like an absolute. And I think that that's bullshit. You can say something like he appears to not know where his wife is, but no. Yeah, it's just, thankfully, this was just one detective that said this. Um, because even with this, other detectives felt otherwise. They knew something was off and listened to the numerous calls coming in from Hella's friends and family and they were still on Richard's ass. Like, they were going to investigate this. On December 11th, Richard was on duty with Southbury Police Department when he was called in for questioning by Newtown Police. At 9.20 p.m., he showed up in full uniform to the detective division and sat down with Lieutenant Michael DeJoseph and Detective Robert Tvardik. I hope I said that right. <laughs> um... Now I'm going to just walk you through their questioning and his answers. So I'll just say question, answer to get through these. Okay. I love how he showed up in full uniform. Like, oh, I'm one of you guys. Yeah, well, he was on duty with a different police department at the time. So, I mean, yeah, it's kind of just like, oh, instead of going home and changing, I'm just going to show up in police uniform. And, Why was yeah. he still on duty if he was being investigated? Right? You think they would have been like, yeah, nobody use him. Like... Bad news, don't use him. But they didn't. Okay, so now to get into their questioning. Question. Richard, do you know what? Do you know that your wife hired a private investigator? Answer, no. Question. Do you know that the PI has documented your relationship with a New Jersey woman? Answer, no. Question. Why would your wife tell her friends she was afraid for herself regarding serving you divorce paper and tell them to check on her if something happened? Answer, I cannot imagine her saying this. It is completely out of character for her to say this. Question, on November 18th, when Hella came home, when and why did she leave? Answer, those answers are in my statement. 
Question, what is the story with your bedroom rug? Apparently you removed it or cut some pieces out of it. Can you explain this to me? Answer, all the rugs in the house are being removed and replaced. Question, what was spilled on the rug in your bedroom? Answer, kerosene. Question, did you cut pieces out of the rug? Answer, yes, two feet at a time. It's easier to remove it that way. Question, what did you do with the rug you took out of the bedroom? Answer, dumped bedroom rug in the Newtown landfill one week ago. It was blue in color. Question, why have you been telling everyone different things about Hella being missing, like her mother being sick? Answer, I didn't want to say my wife was gone and I didn't know where she was. Question, has Hella received any mail since she has been missing? Answer, no. She has gotten no letters since she left. She usually gets about two letters a week. So, he had an answer for everything. He cooperated but remained guarded. Um, investigators knew he had something to do with her disappearance and still would not give up. So, the reason I read his answers is because they are very short and to the point. Mm-hmm. He doesn't give in to anything. He doesn't divulge too much information. He literally answers their question, and that's it. Most people, when they answer a question, they may go on a tangent or give a little bit more back his story of, like, like the, the mail, being, um, mail being received since she's been missing. He's like, no, she's gotten no letters since she left. She usually gets about two letters a week. Okay, from who? That's exactly what I was going to say. From who? Family, friends, her mother, who? But no, he's just very just, yes, no, here's my answer, move on. Keith Mayo, Hella's PI, was unsettled by her disappearance from the jump and conducted his own investigation. Mayo found out about the discarded pieces of carpet from the crafts bedroom and went on a mission to recover the pieces from the local dump. Oh, hell yeah, Keith. Yeah, I know. I was like, let's go, Keith. Uh, with a few helping hands, Mayo conducted a search of the dumps over several days. And after digging through knee-high waste for hours on end, the makeshift team was able to locate a piece of carpet that appeared to match the craft's bedroom carpet. The piece of carpet that was recovered appeared to be stained with blood. Mayo took this to a lab in Meridian, and it was analyzed by the notorious Dr. Henry C. Lee. Dr. Henry C. Lee has worked on Famous cases such as the JonBenet Ramsey murder, the O.J. Simpson, O.J. Simpson, and Lacey Peterson cases. What? Yeah, he. That a, is crazy. He's because... a big deal. You've probably seen him in like a bajillion interviews and stuff. Huh. Very yeah. interesting because all three of those cases have things in common, like JonBenet Ramsey. Still don't know what happened. Um, O.J. Simpson. that one I'm not even going to get into. (laughs) And then Lacey Peterson, that case, a lot of the evidence was, and I quote, circumstantial. So. Yeah. There's a, there's a documentary with him on Netflix where he was actually hired by a defense attorney because normally he's hired by the state. So it looks like he'll take any cases just because he can. Mm -hmm. Um, but he was a big part of getting a guy exonerated for the murder of his wife. And I still don't know how I feel about that case. I can't remember the name of it off the top of my head. But it's the one where the wife's body was found at the bottom of their stairs. And okay. Dr. Lee literally, like, puts 
fake blood in his mouth and like spits it onto a piece of paper in the courtroom to show what it would look like spitting blood out Mm -hmm. compared to the blood on the wall. Mm -hmm. Like he's, he's an interesting guy. (laughs) After a few days, the press finally caught wind of the missing Hella. On December 17th, the first story was published by Danbury News Times. Newtown Police Chief Louis Marchez told reporters that this was still a missing persons case. Keith Mayo also interviewed and told reporters, I don't think she disappeared on her own accord. After the news broke, the state's attorney's office wanted jurisdiction turned over to the state police. Unfortunately, the investigation would be stalled after Dr. Lee reported his findings. Dr. Lee wrote, quote, after four hours of backbreaking work carried out on the carpet, none of the stains tested positive for blood, unquote. What? So after all that hard work that Keith Mayo put into finding this carpet, they didn't find any blood on it at all. But he was only able to find one piece of the carpet. We still don't know what happened to the other piece. Oh, I'm so confused. I'll explain later. Okay. (laughs) Even with these results, Mayo's persistence, as well as Hella's friend's campaign on calling the police, asking for updates, the state police ultimately took over the investigation. So, hell yeah, brother, let's go state police and not the local police department, because obviously they just weren't cutting it at the time. No. Detectives from the Western District Major Crimes Unit began working on the case. They immediately started looking into Richard's activities. They pulled all of his phone and credit card records the month leading up to Hella's disappearance. Six days before her disappearance, Richard bought a large capacity freezer for $375, which would be about $975 today, and picked it up on November 17th, two days before she disappeared. Oh my god. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't look good for Richard. During this month, there was also a rental for some sort of heavy machinery for $900, equal to about $2,440 today. So, something big, something expensive. On Christmas Day, 1986, police put together a search warrant for the Crafts' home. Richard had taken his children to Florida for the holidays, so the police used this as an opportunity to investigate the home with no distractions. Um, okay. He's taking the kids to Florida while this is all going on? Yeah, yeah. And it took them this long to get a search warrant to search their home. Uh, yeah, so, well, it's actually not that long if you consider it. She was reported missing on the 1st. By Within 24 days, they had a search warrant. Hmm. So, if you consider, like, a lot of investigations that happen now, it takes, like, months for them to even do anything. So... They are kind of acting quickly. Maybe not as fast as they could have if they took it more seriously at the beginning, but still. And this was also a strategy because he was gone. Okay. So they didn't have him up their asses like, oh, don't get into that. Or, oh, even though it's a search warrant, they can do whatever they want. But still, it just makes it easier. And it's just having the person out of the house. Yeah. And it's like less likely that he will do anything crazy because, I mean, this man is armed. So, yeah. No, no kidding. Yeah. So, later on Christmas Day, police gained entry to the home through a back window. Present with the detectives was Dr. Lee to help process evidence correctly. The home was absolutely filthy. Ew. 
Furniture was thrown about, dirty clothes everywhere, and dirty dishes in the sink and on the counters. In the living room, there were boxes of toys and mattresses laying on the bare floor. All of the carpets were removed from the home. So he didn't lie. The carpets were getting removed, but still really suspicious. And I feel like if you're doing a big home improvement project, like where you're removing the carpets and stuff, that indicates that you take pride and you value your home. Why would it be so filthy? Yeah, no, like it literally was like he removed the carpet and then put all their shit back on the carpet. So, and it was really weird because it kind of looked like they were all living in the living room and not in their bedrooms. This is a four-bedroom house. There's literally mattresses on the floor in the living room. So I think there may have been some paranoia going on there as well if he's making all three of his children and himself sleep in the living room. I was going to say paranoia or, again, going back to that control thing. Like, maybe he was afraid that his kids were figuring out what was going on and they were going to leave, like, go out a window or something. Possibly. It's just, it's definitely strange. Police did locate a freezer, but there was no body inside. They didn't know this at the time, but this was not the freezer Richard had recently purchased. During the investigation, dozens of weapons were tagged and removed from the home. Over the next few days, investigators would collect 108 pieces of evidence from the home. What? Yep. Lots and lots of evidence. Dr. Lee also performed a luminol test in various locations in the home, which tested positive for blood. Towels that were used, uh, sorry, towels that were seized from the home were tested and came back positive for blood as well. The blood was O positive, the same blood type as Hella. After the investigation of the home, investigators found out that the $900 rental equipment was for a wood chipper called a brush bandit. Oh, no. (laughs) On December 30th, over a month since Hella's disappearance, detectives Patrick McCafferty and T.K. Brown were able to locate Joseph Hine, a local snowplow driver, who found a U-Haul and snow chipper. Wow, snow chipper? (laughs) (laughs) I meant wood chipper. (laughs) I was like, I I was like, for a second, that didn't even phase me. And I was just like, oh yeah, we have those. Yeah, snow chippers, of course. (laughs) No, a snowplow driver who found a U-Haul and a wood chipper off the side of the road. Detectives drove Hine to the location, and here they went to a spot on the shores of the Hostanic River. I think that's how you say it. They also talk about a lake. So I was got confusing information because this is the only time they really reference a river. The rest of the time they referenced a lake. So I just left it in because I'm not really sure if, like, maybe there was a river connected to a lake. I don't really know. Okay. Detectives located a pile of wood chips along the bank of the river with pieces of green plastic mixed in. Detective Brown sifted through some of the materials with his hands and noticed some scraps of paper under the debris. It was pieces of mail. On the mail, he was able to make out Miss Hella L. Crafts 5 Newfield Lane. Okay, so she was getting letters and he was hiding them. That is so stupid because obviously someone sent those letters and... That can be proved, like, proved, whoa. Proven? Proven. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Words are hard. (laughs) Within an hour, a search team was on the scene. 
Every inch of ground was gone over at least twice and photographed evidence in the process. The search team found more pieces of mail, blonde strands of hair, fabrics, bone fragments, plastic, wood chips, and pieces of identified materials. Investigators went to Darien and obtained the rental agreement for the wood chipper. Luckily, the machine was on the property and was immediately towed to the police forensic lab. Investigators continued examining the site at the Hustanic River and divers began searching the water. Due to the cold, divers couldn't stay in the water, so police received clearance to lower the water level. Wow. Words are hard. That was such a tongue twister. <laughs> to lower the water level of the river by restricting flow at the power dam. Divers were able to recover a still brand chainsaw and the serial number was found to be shaven off. More days would pass with no evidence until one detective discovered a piece of a human toe. Oh, and later, a piece of finger was recovered, followed by a tooth. So now we're getting body parts. Dr. Lee would later state that, quote, our team's efforts at Lake Zor eventually led to the discovery of 2,660 strands of blonde hair, 69 slivers of human bone, five droplets of human blood, two teeth, a truncated piece of human skull, three ounces of human tissue, a portion of human finger, one fingernail, and one portion of toenail, unquote. At 9 p.m. on January 11th, a dozen Connecticut state troopers descended upon the home of Richard Crafts. Troopers called Richard and asked him to come out of the home. Richard replied with, quote, I'm tired. I'll take care of it in the morning, unquote. Oh, I'm just going to take a quick nap. This is like really bad timing. Do you guys mind coming back and arresting me for murder tomorrow? Yeah, yeah, I'll just come into the station tomorrow, actually, on my own accord. Uh, we'll just deal with it later. I'm just really tired right now. It's 9 p.m. I gotta sleep. Police advised him to surrender, and this made Richard angry. <laughs> of course it did. He shouted, don't call me back, and hung up the phone. Because they had called him on his house phone instead of just, like, doing it over the loudspeaker. Like, they were outside of his home calling him. Why? Why, why wouldn't they just break down the door and go get him? I don't know. I really don't know. It's kind of odd. Um, after multiple phone calls, Richard finally agreed to come out of the home. At 12.30 a.m., Richard told police, I'll be out in five minutes. Moments later, a disheveled Richard surrendered to the police. He was taken to Danbury Jail, and his bail was set at $750,000. Okay, why were they letting him... Why were they negotiating with him? Oh, I'll be out in five minutes? What if he tries to kill himself within those five minutes? Yeah, I don't know either, because, like, you think that they would just want to take him as quickly as possible, but I don't know, maybe they were just trying to avoid him, because I don't know if his kids were home at the time, so maybe they didn't want to traumatize the kids, but at the same time, like, he could have killed the kids. I know. Because that's happened before. Yeah. So I don't really know. I don't know why they would want to cooperate with him at all, but anyway... Even after his arrest, police continued searching the waters at Lake Zor. Press eventually showed up and started reporting on the man that put his wife in a freezer and then feeding her through a wood chipper. Since all of Hella wasn't able to be recovered, police speculated on how Richard killed her. 
Since drops of her blood were found in the bedroom, police believe that Richard bludgeoned her, possibly with a police flashlight, and then placed her in the freezer. And after dropping Don and his children off at his sister's, he left and returned home. Police continue to speculate that Richard must have taken her body, her frozen body, to a piece of private property that he owned. There, he used the still brand chainsaw and cut her into pieces, packaged those pieces in plastic, and put them back into the freezer. After returning her to the freezer, he allegedly went back to his sister's house and picked up his family and Dawn. The next day, Richard went to the shores of Lake Zor and fed her wrapped, dismembered body into the wood chipper. And while most of her body made it into the water, not all of her did. Oh my god. Yeah, this guy sucks, like I said. And it's it's just sad, because it's like, you don't have all of her to lay to rest. No. Because it's like, when you... Sorry, this is going to get real gross. But like when you feed something or somebody through a, a wood chipper, a lot of that is going to get... like congested turned turned into liquid basically just like blood and everything like that and so it's not gonna it's it's just not gonna be pieces it's gonna be ooey gooey stuff that you can't really do anything with so unfortunately what they found at the scene the toe the finger fingernail her uh teeth that was pretty much all they got from her and then the hair that's all they had left of her It's horrible. Due to the publicity surrounding the case, the trial was moved to New London, Connecticut, about 80 miles north of Newtown, which began in May 1988. The prosecution was led by state attorney Walter Flanagan. Flanagan came prepared with stacked witnesses such as Dr. Lee. Dr. Lee testified that with the thousands of pieces of evidence that were collected at Lake Zor, he was able to determine that the bones were cut with a, quote, heavy type cutting edge that produced a crushing and cutting force, unquote. The most damning piece of evidence would be the chainsaw recovered from Lake Zor with the serial number scratched off. Forensic scientists were able to find human tissue, blonde hair, and several blue fibers in the teeth. Those blue fibers? Yeah, they match the carpet from inside Hella and Richard's bedroom. So her face was like impacted into the carpet. Either that or it got stuck to her or he fed a piece of carpet through the wood chipper with her. But ultimately, the there were fibers and they were able to match it to the carpet. So, I mean, oh, okay. you can't deny that this is who she is and who this who right. was fed through the, chain, right. the, the wood chipper. And even though the serial number was scratched off the chainsaw, the lab was able to recover the serial number, which matched a purchase by Richard Crafts on January 9th, 1981. However, this receipt was not found during the search of the Crafts residence. Bad bitch Keith Mayo turned it over to police because Hella had given it to him in a box of personal documents belonging to Richard. What? Yep. If that is not divine intervention or whatever you want to call that, I don't know what is because that was from 1981 that he purchased that chainsaw. What? So he hung on to that receipt and Hella, while trying to file for divorce, gave that to Keith in a stack of documents. That's a God shot. Yeah. And that's, that's just so crazy to me. Wow. During the trial, Dr. Constantine P. Caruzales 
A forensic odontologist testified that one of the teeth found at Lake Zor were forcibly removed and a piece of the bone was taken with the tooth. He added that if the tooth were taken out by a dentist, it would be clean and not have bone attached. The other tooth still had a piece of metal crown still attached. With x-rays taken of Hella's teeth between 1980 and 1986, he was able to match it to the crown left on the tooth with, quote, medically absolute certain, unquote. So go to the dentist and get your x-rays done, people. Seriously. Because you never know if it's going to be needed to identify your body. Hopefully it never will, but you never know. During the trial, the prosecution showed a videotape to the jury of a dead pig being fed through a wood chipper to show the machine's power. Oh, jeez. Yeah, I ugh, I would not want to be <laughs> a member of the jury at that point. No, same. I mean, it was a dead pig, but still. Ugh. Connecticut has never successfully prosecuted a person of a murder without a body, so the prosecution was under pressure, although confident that they had their man. Defense attorney J. Daniel Sarigan believed it would be impossible for the prosecution to successfully argue their case. The defense argued that the teeth did not belong to Hella and that one tooth is not enough evidence to prove that she was dead. They would go on to argue that Hella wasn't actually dead and was faking her death to frame her husband. Ugh. On June 23rd, deliberations would begin. Over the next two weeks, nine men and three women would deliberate the guilt or innocence of Richard. Even with all the evidence, one single juror walked out on deliberations. He was said to frequent the church next door seeking divine guidance and would not shake his opinion that Richard was innocent. So, with this, the trial ended with a mistrial. No! However, Richard Crafts was not a free man. He remained in jail because he wasn't able to post bail and remained there until the second trial began on September 7th, 1989. So, unfortunately, the first trial did not go well because one jury member could not shake the feeling that Richard was innocent, even with all the evidence and everything in front of them. That's very frustrating. But thankfully, like, even with all of Richard's money there wasn't enough money for him to post bail the $750,000. So thankfully he stayed behind bars until the second trial. Yeah. Thank so, goodness. Yeah. He was never like, it was never like one of those situations where the trial ended and then he got a walk out of court to prepare for the next trial and possibly run. Cause I feel like with right. him, he would have ran. I mean, yeah, he ran to Florida for the holidays. I mean, yeah, I mean, he could probably, if he's got military connections or anything like that, I'm sure he would have just been like, bye. Mm-hmm. Or hoes in different area codes. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's true. The second trial would be virtually a carbon copy of the first. Same witnesses, evidence, but thankfully a different jury. The case went to the jury on November 20th, 1989, and after only eight hours of deliberation, the jury had a decision. My man. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I know. It's like the first jury needed two whole weeks to deliberate. This one is like, mm, we just need a day. Yeah. On November 21st, 1989, almost exactly three years after Hella was murdered, the jury would return a guilty verdict, and Richard was sentenced to 50 years in prison. Mm, not I know. long o- enough. Only 50 years is not long enough. 
During his trial, his sister initially sided with him, but she changed her mind and sided with the prosecution and actually asked the judge to give him the maximum sentence. Oh, good job, Karen. Yeah, I know. <laughs> She's not, like, quite the Karen, but also was still a Karen <laughs> at one point. I feel so bad for everybody named Karen nowadays. Same. Like, that <laughs> sucks. She even contended that one of Richard's children was scared of their father. Hmm. In 1990, Richard appealed, stating that the circumstantial evidence was insufficient and the publicity surrounding the case prevented him from having a fair trial, but the court upheld its verdict. Good. Richard began his sentence in MacDougall Walker Correctional Institute, but was later moved to Osborne Correctional Institute. On January 30th, 2020, at 81 years old, Richard Crafts was released from prison. No! Yeah. <laughs> he was sentenced to live in a halfway house in Bridgeport. He's now living in a shelter for homeless veterans. It was said that he was released due to statutory good time, which removed years from his sentencing. <sighs> yeah. So apparently you can go to murder and get out within, what, 40, 30-something years? I think he was in. I think he was only locked away for thirty-one years. He got twenty years off his sentence. Pretty much, and it That's happened awful. in like early twenty twenty. So it was before COVID hit. So before all of like those weird things started happening with the courts with like releasing prisoners. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't related to that. It was just for good time, basically. I don't know. I just i. I don't feel like good time should really count for anything if you've murdered someone right and it's like i understand that he's 81 years old so he's probably not gonna go kill anybody anytime soon but still like you murdered somebody to begin with you don't get any time left no like you should be in prison for forever you took someone's life and you still have yours exactly unfortunately the prosecutor from the original trials passed away in 2012 and was unable to fight to keep Richard behind bars. And before that, in 1999, Keith Mayo was tragically killed in a car accident. Oh, no. It seemed as though no one was around to fight for Hella anymore. What about her kids? Um, I think... I'm getting to that, sorry. <laughs> well, kind of, not really. I don't really have an update on them. Um, Just how old they were when she was murdered, so... Um, Hella Crafts was brutally murdered and taken away from her children by a selfish, greedy man. Her children were only between the ages of 5 and 10 when she was murdered. Mm. So, hopefully they will still be able to remember their mom. But, even still, like, the oldest kid was 13 when her, their father was taken away from them. Right. So, by ages 8 to 13, they were orphaned. Oh, that's um, so tragic. Thankfully, Richard's sister, Karen, would ultimately gain custody of their children after his arrest. The justice system seemingly failed failed Hella as her murderer is out free. He may have served 30 years, but 30 years is not enough. No. Hella Cross was a beautiful, devoted mother and deserved to live a long life spoiling her children. Her spirit is still strong with her children, family, and friends. So that is the very, very sad and unfortunate murder and disappearance of Hella Crafts. That is so tragic. Yeah, it sucks. Because, like, she seemed like she had a really good head on her shoulders. She was smart, beautiful, 
hardworking, like, doing everything that she needed to. And even with, like, Richard making good money, she still worked. Right. Like, she met him as a stewardess. They got married, had kids. She went back to work as a stewardess. So, she was still doing the damn thing. But, unfortunately, he's just a selfish dick and didn't want her to be left in the world. Which is so ridiculous. Just get a divorce. She was already trying. He, it was probably about the money. He probably knew that she wanted a divorce and that she would be entitled to half of what he owned. And he didn't want that because he's selfish and greedy. Yeah, I think I remember reading that that was part of it, was that he knew if they got divorced, she would get alimony or child support, and so he didn't want to pay that, but it wasn't a confirmed source. I also couldn't find, like, any interviews with him. He seems to be really, like, closed off Mm. and everything. I did find the name of the shelter he's staying at, but I didn't want to put it in the episode because there's other veterans living there, and it's not fair to them to have that blasted to everybody, so it's not hard to find if people really wanted to find out, but still. Sure. I feel bad for all the people that he's living with, because he's a dick. <laughs> it's, I mean, it's just really sad. I I feel for her kids, and it's also a series of unfortunate events that all the people that helped her had passed away by the time that he got out, you know? Yeah, I think her mother had passed away as well, and she still had friends that were around, but they probably weren't notified. Probably not. Because I feel like they only notify, like, direct family members, so maybe his sister knew, but I'm not really sure. Hmm. So, anyway, sorry for that bummer, but um, I also saw that that is the case that kind of inspired Fargo, the movie. Whoa, really? Yeah, so not... Not 100%, but parts of it, because definitely, like, the whole wood chipper thing. Yeah. Um. So I thought that was kind of interesting. But, yeah, I just, I couldn't imagine, like... And part of it bothers me, because, like, you're really going to go through all this effort to get rid of her body and leave the wood chipper on the side of a road, leave evidence behind. It's like, I don't think he was really trying to cover his tracks. But no, at the same I don't time, think he was as smart as he thought he was. That too. And I think there was probably a lot of um, narcissism in there, thinking that he's too good to get caught, thinking he's, like, he's one of them in a way. Yeah, that too. He's just, overall, he's just an idiot. So, anyway, well, is there anything you wanted to add before we end this episode? No, I don't think so. I think that was it. I... Don't know when this is going to air, but I hope that everyone is having a great holiday season. Yes. Happy holidays. Um, I don't know. Do you want to give like a little touch on what your next case is going to be about? Or do you want to keep it completely secret? Because you know I'm going to Google it if you tell me. I'm going to keep it a secret. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Alrighty. Well, everybody, we are still finalizing everything with the Patreon. We were just waiting for some artwork to get finalized and all that fun stuff. Um, but you can follow us on Instagram at sentencepod, and you can also email us at sentencepod at gmail.com if you want to give us any recommendations for um, episodes or um, if you have any true crime-related stories that you want to tell us. But until next time, we hope that you guys have a great day, and we'll see you in the next episode. Thanks for listening.
Bye. Bye.